right, let's jump right back into the text. Chapter 10. As, as I was thinking through um, the text this morning and everything we've done, um, some of the, from something you said, I realized um, that uh, to say that just in general, Mark is just interested in what Jesus does, uh, that's a vast oversimplification. Um, now, for the first two-thirds of the book, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty accurate. But uh, what I'm seeing for the first time is <laughs> Jesus is basically t- uh, talking and teaching uh, this last third. So cor- go back and correct that in your notes. Unfortunately, I can't go back and correct it in the book that I wrote about Mark. But uh, yeah, write another one. Nah, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so we're going we're to start in chapter 10. Chapter 10, uh, Luke takes 10 chapters to talk about what uh, Mark is going to cover in one chapter. Um, so, uh, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Um, we're going to start with uh, a, a topic that's just really difficult. There's just no way this, not, this is not easy. And there's no way that I can, um, there's no way that I can present this and make everybody happy. So, there it is. But I'm not here to make you happy. And there's also, but there's no way I can, I can uh, teach this and cover every eventuality, every um, you know, permutation of divorce and adultery and all the things that happen. But I promise I'm going to do my best, okay? So, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're all friends here. And <clears throat> First, I got to figure out my shirt. Um, okay. The unbutton, this is a little too country club and we're all going to go have martinis, right? Right? This is, this is kind of more Mennonite and I've got to hook the horses up to the wagon. Right? I'm much more comfortable with this. Really? You don't like it? See, I'm getting, I'm getting mixed messages. Okay. That's, that's, that's way too casual for me, you know. I'm going to be smoking cigarettes next. I mean, that's what this is. Okay. All right. Thank you. Do what's comfortable for me. Thank you. God bless you. Does this bother y'all? Okay, good. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel much more comfortable with this. Huh? I, I cannot do teach or play music and do a hat. That's... that's hiding the fact that you're bald as if people already don't know. You know so no, I, I won't do that. Okay, so let's, now let's look at this very serious topic that we get out of my silliness mode. Uh, then Jesus left, <coughs> Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. So what he's doing, if you look at your map on your Bible, he's going south, down Judea's in the south, but he's going to what we call the Transjordan area, which is where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And if, I think in Mark's mind, Jesus is going back to the place where it all started. This is where he was baptized. You know, the ministry's like it's come full circle because now he's going to go up to Jerusalem for the last time and the, the Passion Week happens. So, uh, so when he says across the Jordan, I think that there's, there's more to that than just geographically locating uh, um, where he is. 
Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, you tell me if I'm reading too much into this. But in, in this latter part of the gospel where he is teaching more, the crowds are still there, but they don't tend to be pressing in on him like they were before. And um, someplace I wrote down what I, what I thought was going on. But um, yeah, I, I have, somewhere I have an idea as to why that is. Um, but the, the, anyway, see, see if that makes sense to you. So the crowds are there, but it doesn't, no one's pushing him into the river or pulling at his clothes or that sort of thing. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, um, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, now it's going to be trick questions, test questions that test him. And he can't say yes and he can't say no. Either answer kind of like me this morning. <laughs> no matter what answer I give, it's gonna get you in trouble with somebody. And, um, and so, so there it is. And this is a question that, understandably, um, the, the rabbis argued and, and debated um, a lot. And let's look at it just from a rabbinic point of view, uh, from a Shammai Hillel point of view. The verse is 20, uh, Deuteronomy 24.1. And if you look at the verse, you understand, um, you understand the, the, the issue, okay? If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him, circle displeasing, because he finds something indecent, circle indecent, about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away. It's those two words. Displeasing and indecent. Um, the, the two big rabbinic schools that are active in Jesus' day, Shammai and Hillel. Uh, so the question is, which, which one of those words are you going to pick? Shammai says it's displeasing. And his conclusion is you, only, you can only divorce because of marital unfaithfulness. What's it? Did I say indecent? I'm sorry, dis, in, indecent. Shammai says if she does something indecent, no, notice there's no word about how, how a woman can divorce a man. Patriarchal society, deal with it. That's just the culture. Um, so Shammai says it's indecent, so the only grounds for divorce are adultery. Hillel says he, he goes to the word displeasing. And so if a wife is displeasing to her husband, says Hillel, he picks that word to emphasize he can divorce her. And that's, it's just those two words. The whole thing is, the whole issue, the whole argument is based on which of those two words. And, and that's what rabbis do. They pick it, you know, the, the vowel pointings and the, what, the, what the individual letters mean. And there's one like... Um, Oh, I can't, I won't get into it, but they, every jot and tittle, every little dot is a point of discussion. And so in this issue, they just, it's like pick a word. And it's very unlike Hillel. Hillel is usually the very gracious, you know, kind of Christ-like, very Christ-like person. But he's the person who's really soft on, uh, I mean, it's, it's very, it, it, Hillel says if, if, if he wakes up in the morning and you don't like the look of her, you can send her, send her away. That does not sound like Hillel, but that's how he ended up. Um, yeah, very, very severe. No, no, no. Am I getting this right? Yeah, okay, okay. 
Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the argument that Jesus is walking into. So some Pharisees test them. Can a man, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And it's a real easy answer. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They replied, he permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce in Hebrew, it's called a getim, and send her away. That's Deuteronomy 24, and that's your, ver- that's your verse. And now Jesus is going to you know, unpack that. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, ish and isha. It's almost like they go together. And what Jesus is gonna do now is describe, when he thinks of marriage, this is Jesus thinking out loud about marriage. And there's one concept in his mind, and that is oneness. Listen to how many times he repeats it. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his mother, father and mother and be united to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's Jesus' idea of marriage. He thinks of oneness when he thinks of marriage. And the idea is that God has joined you together. That's the key idea. So in Jesus' mind, that's, that's what marriage is. God, uh, God uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, Bonhoeffer wrote a wonderful letter from prison to, uh, to his friend, uh, Eberhard Bethke. And I actually have a letter from Eberhard Bethke I carry with me in my Bible. Um, uh, it was a wedding ceremony from a prison cell. Bonhoeffer was eventually killed by the Nazis and Eberhard Betka was marrying Bonhoeffer's niece, Renata. So Bonhoeffer looked this up because it's the best statement on marriage you'll ever, ever read. It's one page. But his conclusion is, what is holy matrimony? It's when God adds, adds his yes to your yes. That's when, you, that's when you're married. Okay, you stand there in front of the preacher and you say your vows, you say yes to each other, and that's a good thing. But Bonhoeffer says that it, it's God's presence there. When God says, okay, yes, he's saying yes to your yes. And that's what makes holy matrimony. And that's, I think, very much what Jesus is thinking of. Okay. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked him about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Okay, let me, let me just give you my thinking on this. Uh, because I'm sure there's, both my brother and sister are divorced. Uh, there's a lot of, that's an issue in my family and I've thought a lot about this. Okay, this is my best understanding. The provision is made for divorce. It's in the law. Okay, so if you're a divorced person, there's, you know, that provision was made for you. Why? Because of the hardness of, of people's hearts. And if, if you're a divorced person, you're going, yeah, <laughs> I get that. Um, Jesus says it's not supposed to be that way, but the provision has been made. Now, his conclusion, when he says what, what God puts together, man can't separate, the, the, the logical implication is when man tries to separate it, he can't, right? And so ergo, if a person who's, who is married divorces and they marry again, that's adultery because they couldn't, uh, 
uh, d- dissolve that original bond. But here is the issue, and this is one of the most dangerous things I'm going to say while I'm here. But it's it's based on grace, so I think it's I think it's okay. But I don't even want you leaving here and saying Mike Carr teaches this, unless you know you do it what you want to. The issue is, did God put you together in the first place? That's the issue. And a lot of people, I mean, if, if, if you were in a marriage situation and there was abuse, um, God did not put you together. And the, God graciously made the provision of divorce, mostly to protect women, by the way. Um, but you see, what I, you see where I'm going with this? And the reason it's so dangerous, and I would not, you know, I would not write a book about this or try to talk like I had any expertise about it, is that people would use this as an excuse. You know, I'm married and we're going through a hard time. Well, I guess God didn't put us together. And I say, that's a very dangerous, slippery slope. You see, I'm acknowledging that. But the, the fact is the provision has been made for divorce. The provision, the biblical provision has been made and that, that's, that doesn't get, didn't get wiped away. That's still there. And so if you're a divorced person, um, you are, you know, I, I don't want you to feel guilty or feel like you're committing adultery. I don't think that was Jesus' intent. Jesus was just making a point. And the point is, if God puts two people together, man can't separate them, okay? So if God puts you together and, and uh, you tried to s- separate yourself, you just can't do that. You can't undo something God did. But the active question is, did God do that in the first place? And there's a lot, we can still keep throwing words at that, but that's the best I got. So I hope, I hope you're not gonna burn me at the stake for that. Because <laughs> the whole time my, my brother and sister were both going to, through divorces, my, my brothers actually had been divorced twice. Um, both of their divorces uh, were because a child died and their marriage just didn't survive it. Just couldn't survive it. So there it is. Um, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. And my note says, uh, at, at this point, as, as he gets, to, uh, gets closer to Jerusalem, um, I wonder if he needed to hold them as, they, as much as they needed to be held by them. You know, just, you just imagine him. You know what it does. You know how you feel when you hold a little, little child. Just wonder if it was a comfort to him to just hold them. That's just me, me reading my thing into it. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But, and, and also what, what's happening is, I'm superimposing later rabbinic rabbinism over into this earlier period, but I think it's legitimate. He want, they want Jesus to bless their children, give a rabbinic blessing, uh, like, uh, uh, like Israel blessed his children. You know, there's the, the blessing has a prophetic character to it. So here's, here's my son. He puts a hand on him and, he, and he, he utters this blessing that sort of also tells what the future of the child. So that's also what's in, in view. Um, but the disciples rebuke them, right? They've already, we've seen them do this once already. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. There's the emotional Jesus of Mark. He's, it just makes him mad. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Here's his conclusion. Amen. I tell you the truth. That's his unusual way of saying, I'm about to say something very important. Amen. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. How do, how do 
children receive things. They don't feel like they need to be good enough. Okay, here's your toy. Well, I, I can't take it right now because I'm not good enough. That's not how children refer, receive things. Here's a free gift, right? Oh, daddy, you know, I really haven't done anything to deserve this. No, they start doing that when they're maybe, I don't know, 20. <laughs> and that's how you have to receive the kingdom. It's a free gift, you know. And, and we're, we're about to have the rich young ruler who's going to deal with this issue. This is a perfect setup for uh, the rich young man. Uh, so, uh, so I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He took the children in his arms. This is the second time in Mark that we see him holding. Chapter 9 is where he, uh, he was doing it before. He's holding children in his arms. He puts his hands on them and he blesses them. What, would that, what must that have been like? Oh my goodness. To receive all that tenderness. And he pushes it. He gets mad. Of course, he's kind of mad. When you, when you get up on his lap, he's kind of mad at first because he's mad at the disciples. But then he holds you and kind of calms down. Now, as I said, this, this, this little child is uh, meant to be contrast to the, the rich young man. And here he comes. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good Teacher, that is a hapax legomena. That's the only place that statement, it's the only place in the New Testament appears. Okay? And it's got to be a paraphrase of the word rabbi. It's got to be. Rabbi comes from the Hebrew word rav, which means great or good. Okay? Rav, good teacher. So I think he must have said the word good teacher, or the, the word rabbi. And Jesus. We don't know what the word rabbi means yet, exactly. We're in the proto-rabbinic movement. The, the great rabbis of Jesus' day aren't even called rabbis. They're called princes, nasi, Hillel and Shammai. They're not referred to as rabbis yet. They're called princes, okay? Very important, because we have superimposed post-70 AD rabbinic Judaism on pre-70 AD Jesus' time, and it doesn't always work. Sometimes it's appropriate because the truth is there are well-known teachers in Jesus' day and there's a, a, the beginning of a rabbinic movement and we already have some sayings of rabbis uh, but it's not the full-blown full um, thing that it becomes after the temple is destroyed. Okay? So we just need to be careful. That's all. Need to be careful. So good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, it's a flawed question, right? What's, the, what's wrong with that question? Yeah, you don't get, you don't get eternal life because of what you do. So, it's a, But this man is a poster child for uh, the, fragmenta the fragmented Judaism. Right? This guy represents you, just like Nicodemus in the Gospel of John represents the broken Judaism. This guy represents the broken, the fragmented and broken Judaism. So... Um, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of pulls up. This, I see a bit of his character in this. He goes, why do you call me good? See, don't call me that unless you understand what you're saying. Right? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So let's get that clear <laughs> in the first place. And here, uh, he, uh, he's going to engage this man on his own level. You know the commandments. Do not murder 
Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother, okay? So if you want, you want to be righteous, just obey the commands. And we could be done here. We might have been done, right? Uh, but one of, the, one of the gospels says, but he wants to justify himself. Mark doesn't say that, but one of the other gospels, I think Luke, or I think Luke says that. Teacher, he declares, all these I've, I've kept since I was a boy. And don't roll your eyes at him. He really believes he's done that. Because what have the Pharisees done? They have made the commandments keepable, right? How do I keep the Sabbath? Do, is it a, a, a matter of heart and always loving God and resting and rejoicing? No, you don't spit on the Sabbath. You don't do, and he goes, well, I, I have never, not once have I ever spat on the Sabbath, right? So, and he's not self-righteous. This is a, this is a good man. This is not a self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee. This is a good man, okay? And he really wants to know, okay? So, you know, uh, you want to enter, enter the kingdom? Keep the commandments. I have already. Okay. And look at the response. This is the emotional Jesus of Mark. Jesus looked at him and loved him. So there's a tenderness to this moment. Jesus looks at this guy who's a good man who really wants to understand so you imagine him saying, okay, <laughs> all right. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Okay, you've kept all the commandments since you were a boy? Okay, just one more thing. Let me add one more thing. Sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. At this, the man's face fell and the word for his face falling is a word that's used to describe the sky clouding up. His face got, he kind of clouded up, okay? His face fell. <coughs> he went away sad because he had had great wealth. Now something unbelievable just happened and, and it's, it's easy to, to read right over it. But let me, uh, let me give you a, a really, one of the coolest ideas I've ever heard on this passage. Um, the man says he's kept all the commandments. Jesus' command to sell everything he have and give it to the poor, it was Jesus' way of indicating you broke the very first one. Money is your God. Have no other gods before me. So he hadn't kept all the commandments. He'd broken the very first one. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? And does Jesus, is he condemning him and calling him names or a sinner or anything? No. In fact, there's a tradition in the church that he actually came back. I hope that tradition is true. So uh, he hadn't kept all the commandments. He'd broken the very first one. He had made money his God. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now you gotta know, that statement completely freaks the disciples out. Why? In their world, why are you rich? because God has blessed you and you're a good person. That's Judaism in a nutshell. That's why wealth, you know, is such as this great sign in Judaism. And so when Jesus says it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom, the disciples go, oh, shoot. We'll never make it, right? See, see what just happened? He's, he's, it's countercultural. He's, he's, uh, he's, uh, I don't know, a good word for it. He's sort of dismantling their, their ideas of, of what the world is really like. 
So it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed. Oh my goodness. But Jesus said, children, and this is the first time in Mark that he calls them that. Children. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's everyone's favorite image of Jesus. And you've heard people try to explain it away. He really didn't say that. The, uh, the eye of the needle is really a gate and blah, 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 blah. Well, that, well that, it is a gate, but it wasn't built until the uh, Arab period. It's much later. So that doesn't work. I think he actually said it. How about that? And in Jesus' world, a camel is the biggest animal in his world. They don't know about elephants, right? He's never seen an elephant. And I was actually in Jerusalem one time, and there are camel people everywhere, right? And for five bucks, you know, you get on the camel, and they walk you around the parking lot. And they're very persuasive, right? Come on, come on, come on, get on my camel. I go, no, 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 I don't want to. And the guy said, just sit on it for free, and I'll take your picture. <laughs> what an idiot. I go, oh, okay. So you climb up, and once you're up there, and their backs are this high, he goes, you know, hut, hut, hut. and camels get up back in first, and then this, this weird thing they do, they unfold their legs. But when you're sitting on top of a camel, it's like sitting on top of a house. They are humongous. And of course, I gotta pay five bucks, you know, to get off this thing. So, there you go. But a, a camel is the biggest thing he can think of, and the idea of it going through an eye of a needle is just this very imaginative image. Uh, and the disciples who, who were amazed before are even more amazed. And each one said to each other, then who can be saved? This sounds, you're making this sound impossible. Rich people, it's hard for them to get in. Camel through the eye of a needle, gee, it's impossible. Of course, that's the exact point Jesus is making. It is impossible, okay? That's why God has to do it. God enables you to enter the kingdom, not the rich young ruler who has to keep all the commandments. That's not what gets you in the kingdom. It is impossible. So God has to do it. That's the idea. Um, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, there it is. With man, it's impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said, remember, this is Peter's testimony. Peter said, <clears throat> We've left everything to follow you, just in case you forgot. You said, Thought I would just throw that in at this point, right? And the truth is, they had left everything, right? Peter is not a buffoon like he's often you know, presented. Um, he's just making a point. We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, listen to that long list, for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times much in this present age, homes, sisters, mothers, brothers, father, children. And, and only Mark says, and with persecutions. He's writing to his first readers who are suffering persecution. And I can tell you guys, I've been on the road for 35 years trying to, you know, do the kind of gospel thing, and I have houses everywhere. I've got a house in Beijing, China that's mine anytime I want to. Um, I've got a, I have a house in Havana, Cuba 
Uh, it's mine anytime I want it. I go there and they treat me like a king. Um, we were there uh, several years ago. And, uh, and it's third world. This part was third world poverty. And the lady who lived there, she heard that I like coffee. And she goes, do you like coffee? Oh, yeah. Let me make you some. So, okay. So, go in the kitchen and there's a burner sitting on a brico block. And up on the, on the shelf is a pot that's got coffee in it. And there's a chicken on the shelf next to it, sitting on its nest. You know, uh, you know what, is it, what does you get from, uh, what is it that chickens carry? Salmonella. Oh, yeah. I'm like, eh, 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 salmonella, salmonella. <laughs> so she takes this off and she puts it on the burner and she's going to make me a cup of coffee. And, I'm, and there's no way I'm saying no to this, right? If it's going to kill me, I'm going to drink this. So she takes a, a tin can that they've you know, cleaned the edge up on because that's their cup. She warms this up and it's the best coffee I've ever had in my life. She has a coffee tree in her front yard. She roasts the beans over this thing and break, break, breaks them with a brick and, and puts them in the hot water and cooks it. And I've never tasted anything like And I didn't get sick. But the point is, I've got houses all over the world. I got a house in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And, and not, not only, well, I, I have friends in Jerusalem. Uh, I have Kamal, a good Palestinian friend of mine. Not only will he do anything for me, he's a Christian, he's my brother. If anyone goes to Jerusalem, I give them his number and he picks them up at the airport and he takes them to eat. He will do, you know, who, who's been to Israel with me? Remember Kamal? Is he not the most Christ-like person you've ever? Wait, he, he did that for you too. Yeah. Yeah, they were trying to get someone to take him to the airport, and Kamal said, No, I'll take you to the airport. So, so what Jesus said, I, that's really, tr that happens to be true. That happens to be true. So, um, you leave everything to follow me. I got a song about that. Can I play it? <laughs> if I hadn't played that, I wouldn't remember the point. And the, of course, the main point is they left everything to follow him, but guess what? What did he left? to be with them. He left paradise. Yeah. So I'm glad that helped me remember that. <laughs> I play that sometimes and I'm afraid that people think I'm talking about me. And I mean, I always stick with this about Peter. I'm not bragging that I left everything to follow you. Okay. Uh, we left everything. I tell you, oh, where's you? We already did that. Uh, okay. Um, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And that sums up the, the interaction with the child, right? And then it sums up the interaction with the rich young ruler. Okay. Um, how are we doing on time? We're good. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. There it is, with Jesus leading the way. Uh, the last stop, if you look at your map, the last stop before Jerusalem is Jericho. Uh, Jericho, by the way, is the oldest city in the world. It's the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. Absolutely, you know, ancient, ancient city. And it, you can stand at the Jordan River where John was baptizing and see Jericho. It's just right, you know, maybe a couple of miles, big flat desert plain. And behind it 
are these big mountains, these rolling mountains. And up on top of those mountains, you can't see it from Jericho, but up there on the top is Jerusalem. So you, you come down the Jordan Valley, you get to Jerusalem, you make a right, and you go up this road. It's the same road that the Good Samaritan happens on, the road from Jericho. So it's this windy road that goes up through the desert. So they're just about to get on that road, uh, 15 to 18 miles, depending you know, which, way, which way you go. So they're on their way up to Jerusalem. <coughs> and Jesus is leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed him were afraid. In 9.15 it said the crowd was overwhelmed by merely seeing Jesus. I don't under, really understand this. I can't, I can't make this available to you. Because I, I it's not available to me. So the disciples are astonished. I don't know what that means. Like, wow, we're doing this. Maybe they're astonished because they think he's going to be a king when he gets there. I don't know. Clearly, they're expecting thrones when they get there. Uh, while the people are afraid, I don't know. Um, make sure I'm caught up to my notes. Yes. Um, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. I think this is the third time he's done this. And Luke, he tells it in the 10 chapters of Luke, he tells it a lot more times. But in Mark, it's three times. And every time there's more detail. He keeps adding detail about what's going to happen to him. Took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. The son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. That's the Sanhedrin. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And that's when they stop listening. And then he says, three days later, he will rise. They never hear that. You know, if I were to tell you guys, I've got cancer and tomorrow I'm going to die, and I'll be signing books at the book table later on, you wouldn't hear that, right? You go, he's going to die. You know, that's what happens. Um, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask, which is, that's, what, that's what 10-year-olds do. You know, if I ask you something, will you give it to me? It's, that's, a wise parent doesn't say yes to that, you know, that deal. Um, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. I've got a star on that, but I don't see where the star leads to. Um, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and hand, at, at, at your right and the, and the other at your left in your glory. Uh, there's a parallel to this in, in, in Matthew 19 and Luke 22. He has just promised them that they're going to sit on 12 thrones. So they're not being overtly greedy. He just told them they're going to sit on thrones. They just said, well, can we sit on your right and left? James and John. And stop, don't roll your eyes at James and John. I see you, don't roll your eyes at them. James and John are the first and the last disciples to die for Jesus. Think about that. James is the very first person to die for Jesus and John will be the very, the very last one. So these brothers are like bookends of the disciples. And so let's, uh, let's cut them some slack, shall we? You know, let's cut them some slack. Uh, and Jesus doesn't seem to get irritated because you don't know what you're asking. 
Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered, and they, and they were. They were. Peter at one point says, I'll die for you, right? And he did. And Jesus said to them, listen, you will. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right and left hand is not for me to grant. Um, my note says, Jesus claims absolutely no authority. The only authority is, all authority is given to God. God decides who's gonna sit where. I'm not gonna even decide that, okay? It's not for me to grant. Uh, those places belong to those t- for whom they've been prepared. And don't you, don't you wonder, who, who's it gonna be? Probably a couple of people we've never heard of, right? Probably a couple, probably Kamal, right? That's what it's gonna be. Who's, who is that guy in glory sitting next to Jesus? He's a bus driver from uh, Jerusalem. Oh, well, nice crown, right? Right. Where's, you know, the big famous TV evangelist who, blah, 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 you know, who everybody celebrates? Well, he's actually sweeping up in the back. Uh, but he's happy, you know, he's happy to be doing that. Um, I made all that up on the spot, so don't, I'm being silly. Um, <clears throat> when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant um, with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you, and this is interesting to me because he's appealing to their pride as Jewish men. He's, he's not saying something negative about the, well, he is kind of using the Gentiles as a negative example. Okay? Um, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority, not with you. So he's basically saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Because they like positions of authority. They like to lord it over each other. And it's, you guys are sounding like them. And these Jewish guys are going to go, mm, we don't want to sound like Gentiles. So not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. So at first it was become like a child. And now it's become like a slave. And it's the word, it's doulos. It's, I think it's doulos. It's the word for slave. Um, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. It, it, my note says at this point, read Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53. But, so run Isaiah 53 in your, in your head. We're almost done. So here he comes, Bartimaeus. I suggest to you that the whole gospel is led up to this moment. That, it, it, well, I mean, obviously the cross and the resurrection are the big moment. But so far, Bartimaeus is the disciple that Jesus has been looking for for three years. And let me tell you, let me show, show you and tell you why. Um, let me, I wrote this down. Uh, by the way, Matthew tells this story too, but Matthew doesn't name him. And Matthew has two blind men. Matthew always doubles his witnesses. You'll notice that. And he's not adding, it's just that he's, he's, he thinks in Old Testament and everything has to be established in the mouth of two witnesses. So the gathering demoniac in Matthew is two demoniacs. Now he didn't make that up. I think there really were two there. And he was interested in there too. The other, John doesn't care. He's not interested in that, but Matthew is. So when Matthew tells this story, there are two blind men. But, uh, um, and only Mark knows his name, which is not actually his name, it's his father's name. He's the son of Timaeus. But this is what I, I wrote. 
Uh, Bartimaeus, he becomes the jewel of Jesus' ministry. He is the one who was blind, who asks for nothing but mercy, who leaves everything he has to follow Jesus immediately. He's the disciple Jesus has been looking for, right? He's willing to believe without seeing, and when Jesus calls him, he follows, right? You can't be my disciple unless you leave your possessions, and he does that, okay? In contrast to the rich young ruler who can't do that, okay? And Jesus invited the rich young ruler to follow him, right? Go give everything to the poor and then follow me, right? He won't do it. Bartimaeus does. So Bartimaeus is, is a big deal. He is a big deal. So let's look at him. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. And this, they aren't all following Jesus. This large crowd, they're going to Jerusalem for Passover, Okay, so Jesus has a group of his followers amidst this much bigger crowd, pilgrimage crowd. Um, As they were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. If you're blind, that's the only option you've got. And his culture, why is he blind? Because he's sinned. Why is the rich man rich? Because he's blessed. You see? There's this radical, the, the, the theologians call this the transvaluation of values. Why well, use a little word that you can understand when you can use a big word that nobody understands? It's basically the world's been turned upside down. So the rich guy really isn't rich. And the, the miserably poor guy who's blind is actually the guy that Jesus has been looking for. See? Isn't this beautiful? And we have to develop eyes to see the world this way. Right? We have to see the world this way. Um, where was I? (laughs) He's sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what you need to know, you hear what he just said? Bartimaeus is the only person in the whole gospel of Mark who calls Jesus, Jesus He's the only person who addresses Jesus by his personal name. How about that? How cool is that? So he, he is asking for Hesed. You know, when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Okay, so Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Yeah. I'm just making, catching up with my notes. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. That's what they do, right? They rebuke children. Jesus isn't too important. Shut the heck up, right? This is the second or third time we've seen the disciples do this. People want Jesus and they go, look, he's too important. You know, back, you know, like they're protecting the president or something. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And that makes me like him. You know, he will not do what they tell him to do. I have a reference here. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Oh, sorry, that's not right. I'm, I'm talking about the eyes. Of, forget I said that. That comes in chapter 11. My, my note was in the wrong place. <clears throat> 
So they call the blind man, cheer up. Here's the note I was looking for. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. This is Isaiah 35, 4 and 5. Be strong, fear not, which is cheer up. Behold your, behold, your God will come to you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. So this, this scene was almost portrayed in Isaiah 35. Get up, cheer up. He's calling you. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Here's the important detail. Throwing his cloak aside. Very important that that detail is there because as a poor person, that's all he's got. And additionally, as a, as a beggar, his coat is what he catches coins on. So he sits there, he spreads his cloak out, and people put coins in his cloak. So he also just left all the money. You know, he... he could have, might have possibly, you know, had. So throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet uh, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? How insensitive, how politically incorrect, you know, no. Why, why does Jesus ask that? Because Jesus really wants to hear the next words of Bartimaeus. He's been waiting to hear someone say this for three years. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Jesus goes, at last, someone who knows they're blind, who believes without seeing, and they want to see, oh, I've been waiting for you for three years. Um, And how does he heal him? Really interesting. He says, go. That's the word that heals him. Go. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So as as best I can understand it, when Jesus enters Jerusalem uh, in a few days, there's going to be a blind guy on one side of him and a dead guy on the other side of him. (laughs) Lazarus and Bartimaeus, at least here we see that, well, and actually, I do know that. That actually is in two different places that's referred to. So when he enters Jerusalem, he's got a blind guy and a dead guy with him. And uh, they still didn't, uh, didn't see, okay?